You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey there, today we're talking about Mass Effect, one of my favorite video games of all time, a classic, in my opinion, of science fiction, and a great example of world building and inserting interesting, believable politics into a fictional sci-fi world. Now, I know I'm not alone in thinking that Mass Effect, in some ways, represents the pinnacle of the video game developer Bioware. If you're familiar with video games at all, and especially if you're into role-playing games, you know Bioware, and you probably have fond memories of classic Bioware video games. And for a lot of us fans, Mass Effect, along with the other video game Dragon Age, which came out around the same time, sort of represent Bioware's peak as an RPG developer. And in my opinion, it's sort of all downhill from there. The Mass Effect and Dragon Age sequels, everything they've done since then, has, in my opinion, just gotten worse and worse. And I'll probably rant about that in the future. I certainly intend to do more episodes on Mass Effect. Not all at once this time, like I did with the Heinlein series. I'll try to mix things up. But I definitely am going to talk more about Mass Effect and different aspects of the Mass Effect video games and the setting and the politics over time. But for now, I mainly want to focus on this first game in the series and for the most part, focus on the setting, the setup to the game, the basic background of the first game when you fire it up. Because again, I think this game is amazing in terms of its world building, in terms of its characters, in terms of its writing, just everything about this game speaks to me as a fan of good science fiction and political science fiction. Now, having said all that, I should just warn mild spoilers for Mass Effect if you've never played any of the video games before, and if you're a fan of this kind of thing and you haven't, I strongly encourage you to check out Mass Effect. But if you haven't before and you're interested, there will be some minor spoilers for the basics of the game. I don't think I'm going to try to stay away from anything too major. I'm mostly going to talk about the setup to the game, so nothing that you wouldn't pick up within the first hour of playing. And if I cover anything else, I'll try to insert it into the show notes so that you can see in advance and skip over any section where I talk about other stuff. But still, just fair warning. So let's talk about this game. Mass Effect released in 2007, and again, for me, it marks the high point of Bioware as a developer of great role-playing games. And this is the era when Bioware was transitioning from doing its old-school, very Dungeons & Dragons-based isometric RPGs, those games like Baldur's Gate, where you control a party of characters and you click around on the screen and you fight battles and you can pause and reposition your guys and so on. Bioware was moving away from that and trying to capitalize on new, better technology to create basically prettier games. So they switched to developing games that had a third-person perspective, better graphics, and Knights of the Old Republic, the Star Wars game, sort of marked the beginning of this transition. And Mass Effect sort of is the culmination of this, where they've officially really moved from developing these old school tabletop role-playing game inspired games 
to something that's a little more action RPG-ish. So more of a mix of role-playing game elements along with more straight action elements, making combat more in line with standard third-person shooters of the day as opposed to the old click and attack games of the past. And it did incredibly well. It was well-received by fans and critics. It sold well and ultimately spawned two sequels in sort of this official Mass Effect trilogy, followed by another game that released more recently, Mass Effect Andromeda. I'll probably complain about that at some point. But the original, at least, was absolutely astounding. I will say, the gameplay is pretty crappy. Combat is clunky. It's by we're trying to move in this more action-oriented direction, and they clearly didn't have that figured out yet, where other developers who made games that really focused on combat were figuring out the whole cover-based shooter thing, where you have third-person view, you control a guy with a gun, and you move from cover to cover, and pop out and shoot guys, and so on. Other developers had figured that out. Bioware was trying to insert that into their more talky and exploration-based RPG, and it comes off as very clunky. Combat is just really brutal, especially if you're playing certain types of characters. In the game, you're given the option to create different characters based on different classes. Of course, this being an RPG, you have this kind of freedom. And so you can create a character that uses sort of space magic and shotguns, or a character that uses just magic, or a character that uses assault rifles, or a character that uses sniper rifles and fancy technology. And basically, the game doesn't work the same for all of them. I can say that in general, I like to play more of a sniper type character when given an option in these kinds of games. And what Mass Effect essentially does is that tells you, oh, you want to play a sniper? Well, we're going to give you 12 different combat scenarios where you're locked in a tiny room with a bunch of dudes who will charge at you. So it doesn't always work. It's not well balanced. And even when you are playing a class that's more suited to the game and know what you're doing, it's just clunky. And I realize starting off talking about this, saying that I love this game, it's amazing, and then the gameplay is awful, doesn't make sense. But if you understand why I like video games and why I like role-playing games in particular, this isn't contradictory. What Mass Effect really delivers on is letting you explore and interact with a truly interesting sci-fi setting, lets you have interesting conversations with interesting characters, and it allows you to feel like you're really shaping the world you're inhabiting while you're playing this game. It has the hallmarks of a truly good video game role-playing game. You feel like you are inhabiting this world, you are making meaningful decisions, you are playing a role in this world. That's what the original Mass Effect really delivers on. And the action bits, the shooting bits, for me, are just there to fill things in between the times where you get to have really interesting conversations with characters and decide what your team is going to do next and how you're going to resolve and solve different problems. That, for me, is what Mass Effect is all about, and they do that in an amazing way. And as far as I know, speaking of character interactions and making choices, I believe Mass Effect was the first game to develop what has become sort of standard among more modern video game role-playing games, which is the little dialogue wheel for selecting what your character is going to say. Prior to Mass Effect, most role-playing games, it was you're in a conversation with a character, and when it's your turn to talk, you're given a list of dialogue choices, and you pick which one your character says, and the conversation moves forward. In Mass Effect, they gave you this little dialogue wheel where rather than giving you a list of choices, it tells you, okay, you can use this wheel to select a more direct aggressive response or a funny snarky response or a compassionate response. So it made dialogue smoother, more fluid, 
And it wasn't perfect. Some developers have subsequently improved on this. Some have made it worse. But it was an interesting idea. And it was, in my opinion, a good step forward. And it really did change how RPGs were made in the future. Most developers of AAA role-playing games ended up adopting this new model for designing dialogue in their games. And so that's what Bioware is about for me. It's about an interesting setting, learning about this world, exploring this world, talking to interesting characters, making meaningful decisions that impact the world. Combat, which is lousy, is secondary. And it seems at least a few people agreed with my assessment because, again, the game did very well. It was celebrated by critics. It acquired a massive fan base. And people eagerly awaited the sequels. And then most of them ended up being horribly disappointed by the end of the third game. But we'll probably talk about that in a future episode. For now, I want to talk about why the Mass Effect universe, as presented in the first game, is so cool and interesting. Now, I'll start off by saying, for a big-budget, mainstream video game, Mass Effect goes in a very hard sci-fi direction. It really gives us more big ideas and plays around with plausible, interesting technology and tries to create a world that makes sense and doesn't just fall back on space magic. It tries to reference real-world physics and stuff. All the hallmarks of hard sci-fi, as opposed to the soft sci-fi, which is closer to fantasy, where it's more just magic in space. This goes in a much more hard sci-fi direction. Interesting technology, exploring how this technology would impact the development of civilizations, and exploring big ideas. And this is what I love about science fiction. And again, for a big-budget video game, Mass Effect gives us a lot in this regard. Now, it's not Asimov or Clark or Heinlein. They don't go that far. It is still a mainstream video game. But they give us more hard sci-fi than pretty much any other video game out there at the time, or really since then. It's telling that... The title of the series, Mass Effect, references a scientific phenomenon that exists in this universe. That's kind of a hint at the sensibilities, the interests of the writers of this game. In the Mass Effect series, what we learn is that in the not-too-distant future, humanity will discover, through the discovery of a new element and new technology, a means to essentially create these little fields, these bubbles, within which you can artificially increase or decrease the mass of matter within this bubble. And this comes to be called the mass effect, and these fields come to be known as mass effect fields. Essentially, you can develop technology that can just increase or decrease mass within a certain area. And this sort of becomes the basis for human technological progress and space exploration going forward. It's explained that this is how humanity gets around the speed limit of the speed of light. And I'm not a physicist, but my understanding, based on the little I've read and what Mass Effect goes into, is part of the reason it's impossible for matter to travel faster than light is because as an object moves faster and faster, as it accelerates more, its mass increases, and so it's more massive, it's heavier, and therefore it requires more energy to accelerate it any further. And this just increases exponentially to a point where you could never actually reach light speed because an object would become so massive you would need more energy than you could possibly produce to accelerate it anymore. And within this series, it's explained that what we found a 
way to sort of technologically, artificially reduce the mass of an object. So we keep speeding it up and then keep decreasing its mass so we can get around this. So I don't know how well the science holds up on this. I suspect it's pretty out there. But at least it's an idea. It's an explanation for faster-than-light travel. And at least in the first game, they stick to this idea. So right off the bat, just from the name of the game and how the game describes the setting, we're getting much more hard sci-fi. It's acknowledged that the speed of light is a thing. It's acknowledged that this is sort of a universal speed limit. And it's acknowledged that in the real world, if human beings ever wanted to travel faster than light, we would have to find a way around that, and they give us a technological explanation. Now, it's not all hard sci-fi. There is some space magic in here. It's also explained that some human beings and other alien species are capable of just naturally being able to create these mass effect fields, and through this they're able to levitate things and create energy blasts and throw things around, and that gets more into, like, Star Wars, the Force, space magic. That goes a little out there and gets a little silly. But still, again, for a major video game, much more hard sci-fi than you're used to. Beyond that, just other other little snippets, just other little pieces of dialogue or little things inserted into the game that show the writers were really thinking about how technology would work in this setting. We get little hints at how space combat works in this future, and it's explained how space combat involves ships which are kilometers apart from each other, firing weapons at each other that accelerate projectiles at a percentage of the speed of light. So getting away from the Star Wars model where you have basically World War II dogfights in space, ships right near each other, that looks more dramatic and more interesting but it's probably not realistic. Mass Effect gives us a setting where space combat looks probably more like what space combat would be in real life. Space is really big. If we develop the technology to accelerate ships and objects at these kinds of speeds, we would be shooting at each other from miles and miles away, and these things would be moving so fast it wouldn't matter anyway. Dodging or outmaneuvering somebody wouldn't really be a thing because projectiles are coming at you so fast there's no getting out of the way. All of this much more real science and thinking about how real science works and how human beings would adapt to these technological challenges. And further, just one more element that becomes a key plot point in the story. The writers also acknowledge that even if human beings did discover how to travel at the speed of light or slightly faster than the speed of light, we still really wouldn't be able to go many places very quickly. We still see the writers acknowledging even traveling at the speed of light, it would take decades, centuries, millennia to get to other stars in our galaxy. They acknowledge this and get around this and allow us to be able to, in this setting, explore the entire galaxy and travel around and visit distant stars by explaining that apart from all this other stuff, apart from the new technology humans have discovered, humans also discover a network of what they call mass relays. And humans essentially discover that an ancient alien civilization that existed and for some reason went extinct long before humans ever evolved on Earth. This ancient alien civilization developed these things that humans call mass relays. And these things essentially are a network of waypoints stationed throughout the galaxy. And they basically create portals from one part of the galaxy to another. You enter a mass relay, it shoots you out into another mass relay, basically instantly. And so that's how humans and other intelligent civilizations are able to traverse the insanely large distances of space. We can use faster-than-light travel to travel within a solar system, but then to go to distant stars, we fortunately discovered that this 
civilization that existed before us and is now gone left behind this network of mass relays that allows us to shoot from one star to another, and that sort of ties the galaxy together. And I suspect they borrowed this idea from the movie Contact and the novel it was based on. I think in Contact, humans discovered that there was an ancient alien race that left behind a means of traveling the galaxy or something. I think that's where they get this from. But interesting idea, and again, hard sci-fi in the sense that we have the writers acknowledging, even with faster-than-light travel, if we really wanted to explore the galaxy, we'd need something else. And the writers fortunately invent and give us this thing. And yes, it's never really explained. It's all space magic-y. But at least there's something there. And further, it's an interesting idea that allows interesting stories and conflicts to flow from it. Again, we have real attention to detail here where the writers create these interesting plot points and then really explore in a believable way how civilizations would adapt to these things. For example, with regard to the mass relays, they sort of answer the question that kind of comes up if you think about it in a lot of sci-fi stories. How could different species end up fighting each other over control of solar systems or planets in a galaxy as big as ours? There are billions of stars, trillions upon trillions of planets. Can't you just go somewhere else? Why would we end up fighting each other when there's so many resources available? Well, Mass Effect tells us all these civilizations are kind of limited. We're kind of limited in where we can go. We can really only explore those parts of the galaxy. We can really only colonize and settle those star systems, those planets, where there's a mass relay nearby. So it limits the expansion of intelligent life and creates a sort of point of conflict for the species in this galaxy. We're going to be in conflict over access to these mass relays. We're going to be in conflict over access to the planets, the solar systems that connect to these mass relays. So an interesting idea, a great case of giving us a plot point that can explain something we want to establish, how human beings can go out and explore the galaxy when distances are so vast. But then this plot point flows into and connects to the next. If this is the case, what kind of conflicts would likely arise from this? How would this dictate the development of intelligent life, advanced civilizations. All of this, just amazing. I can't praise this enough. This kind of world building, I absolutely love it. Absolutely amazing. And this is just the basics of the technology that drives this universe. Then we can get into the setting when the game begins and the politics that drive this universe. And the background here is, again, in the near future, humans discover faster than light travel, which allows them to explore and colonize quickly the rest of the solar system. And while exploring the solar system, humans discover one of these mass relays. It's actually explained that one of the moons of, I think, Pluto, this game, by the way, written before Pluto lost its status as a planet, one of the moons of Pluto is, in fact, one of these mass relays that is laying dormant for millennia and just became covered in ice and looked like a small moon, and is in fact one of these mass relays. So human beings in the near future discover it, they activate it, and they zoom off to another part of the galaxy to start exploring. And what humans discover is that the galaxy is actually full of intelligent life. There is a whole galactic community that they have until now been cut off from, and they discover that this galactic community is already well-established with its own set of norms and its own complex politics. 
and human beings are sort of forced to incorporate themselves into this new community and find a place for themselves in it. And this is where I think Mass Effect gets really interesting from a political perspective and really gives us a unique take on human interactions with alien life. I think a lot of science fiction that deals with humans encountering aliens follows one of a couple models. There's human beings encounter aliens that are monsters, the, the horror model, where they're just mindless monsters and we have to fight them and defeat them. There's the human beings encounter alien civilizations that are far more advanced than we are. Humans are visited by aliens and discover that they are millennia ahead of us technologically. And these aliens either end up being mentors and guides to us in a positive story, or these aliens end up trying to conquer us, and we have to fight an underdog, scrappy battle against a superior enemy. I've talked about this before. I think these stories are kind of silly, but fun. And sometimes we get stories where humanity encounters alien civilizations, and we find we're sort of all basically on the same level as them. This is more the Star Trek model, where humans go out, start to explore the galaxy, and discover that there are other intelligent alien civilizations out there, the Romulans, the Cardassians, the Vulcans, the Klingons. But we discover we're all roughly equal technologically. Some are a little more advanced in one area, a little less advanced in another. But human beings are basically able to take their place in this new galactic community as equals. And in the case of Star Trek, sort of end up being first among equals, where humanity becomes a founding member of the Federation and seems to, in a lot of the Star Trek stuff you watch, they really seem to dominate the Federation. The Vulcans seem to let them kind of take the lead. So humanity joins a galactic community where they are at least equal, if not a little bit ahead of everybody else. Now, I think those are kind of the general templates for this kind of science fiction story. What Mass Effect does is it gives us a story where humanity joins the galactic community and finds that they're not completely outclassed by everybody else. They don't discover alien life that is so far advanced they can barely comprehend it. But they also don't find they're exactly equals either. What humanity finds is a galactic community full of civilizations that are at least a few generations ahead of them. And in terms of access to resources, in terms of how much of the galaxy they've explored and colonized, are very much ahead of them. And in terms of politics, they find that they're the newcomers, and sort of all these other alien civilizations have already established their place in the galaxy, and humanity is trying to kind of force their way in. Humanity basically finds itself in the position of being like Ecuador or Armenia in the United Nations. They're a stable state. They have stability. They have some degree of power. They're not completely outclassed by everybody else. But you still got the United States and Russia and China. You still got major players that clearly, in terms of political influence, in terms of military power, in terms of wealth, clearly outclass them. That's the position humanity finds itself in. We join the galactic community and we're clearly a tier two power. And this is really an interesting spot to place humanity in for this kind of story. And I don't see a lot of stories that explore this. And so much of the first Mass Effect really does explore this idea. We have so many conversations with other characters where human beings express this frustration at having joined this galactic community and feeling like second-class citizens, feeling like other alien races don't take us as seriously, they sort of look down on us, we're the newcomers, we don't have the same power, we don't have the same influence. And a lot of the game is about humanity trying to carve out a place for itself. I just love this. Such an interesting idea to play around with. 
And just in general, I can't think of many mainstream stories, blockbuster movies or AAA video games that explore the kind of political frustration that comes from being sort of a second tier power. I think a lot of movies like to portray the heroes as the dominant force or the clear underdog. And here we get a case where humanity occupies this space in between and how to deal with that. And we see on the diplomatic side, a lot of politicking around this. The player character in Mass Effect will encounter and interact with humanity's ambassador to the Galactic Council, basically the UN in space. And this ambassador will express these same frustrations and talk about the work he's doing to try to get humanity a more dominant place in this galactic community, get humanity to be taken at least more seriously by this galactic council. And while we're talking about it, this council is really interesting. In the game referred to as the Citadel Council, named for the location it's based on, this massive space station called the Citadel. The Citadel Council seems to operate to some degree like the United Nations. You have representatives of a whole bunch of intelligent alien races all meeting together in this place where they discuss and debate political issues relevant to all of them. And even like the United Nations in that they have something like a security council in place. In the real world, we have a United Nations with a Security Council comprised of five permanent members, the United States, Russia, China, the United Kingdom, and France, along with 10 non-permanent members who rotate in and out, the rest of the countries of the world sort of taking turns sitting on this council. And in the United Nations, the Security Council represents sort of the center of power. Really, nothing gets done without the Security Council signing off on it. And this is really by design. It reflects sort of the state of politics when the United Nations was founded post-World War II, where you have those states which held the most power, the United States, Russia at this time, the Soviet Union, China, United Kingdom, France, sort of all coming together and agreeing that in creating this United Nations, we're also going to make sure we hold significant power in it. And so it sort of cements the power of those already with power and further helps promote sort of a balance of power where it gives all these states who at the time are, of course, not allied with each other. You have the Soviet Union facing off against the United States, sort of allowed to both have a seat at the table and able to balance against each other. And to further cement this idea that everybody can balance against everybody else. You have these permanent members given an unlimited veto on any measure the UN Security Council might pass. So if every other member of the Security Council votes for some measure and one of the permanent members chooses to veto it, the measure is defeated. And this just preserves the power of those permanent members. And so in the real world, interesting idea. We have this thing called the United Nations. It's supposed to be very democratic. The whole world coming together. Everybody gets a seat at the table. We can vote on everything. But then we sort of really concentrate power in the hands of a few states that already wield a great deal of power. And we see something very similar having developed in the Mass Effect setting, where you have this Citadel Council. But at the beginning of Mass Effect, there's only three species that are really official members of this council. The alien races, the Asari, the Turians, and the Salarians. Those are the only three civilizations who are really the official members of the Citadel Council. The representatives of these three races get together and meet and discuss things. They're the ones that really hold power. And basically every other species is considered an associate member, where they get to have an embassy on this Citadel and meet with the council and voice their grievances, but they really don't wield real power. 
and humanity finds itself joining this latter group of people. They get associate status on the Citadel Council, they get to have an embassy there and get to meet with the official council, but they don't really wield true power. They find themselves having to constantly go to the council and those three more dominant species to get anything done. And so Mass Effect exploring really real-world international relations, how we have very noble-sounding organizations interested in international cooperation and peacekeeping, but at the same time indications that these organizations really are just tools of the powerful. Although, as opposed to the real world, in the Mass Effect setting, this council seems to have real, meaningful political power. In the real world, the United Nations, at least for some, is considered kind of a joke. There are lots of people that are hopeful that it could grow into a more powerful organization with real lawmaking power, but those who are more realist-minded, who are more believers in power politics, are more likely to say the United Nations doesn't really hold any power, international law doesn't really mean anything, because no one has the power to enforce it. If the United States and Russia and China refuse to enforce international law, then that law really doesn't exist. And those countries really only enforce international law when it suits them. So it's not really international law. It's just America and Russia and China and the other great powers pursuing their own interests and dressing it up as some kind of international cause. And we really don't see the UN existing as a true lawmaking organization. International law really doesn't carry that same weight as domestic law in the real world. Contrast that with Mass Effect, where the Council does have its own military. It seems to have a standing army, an established police force, and they do pass what amount to international laws that carry the weight of law. They are enforced by the military of the Council. So we see in the Mass Effect setting real attempts to establish true, meaningful international law. Now, again, this international law and this international lawmaking leaves out a lot of the races of the galaxy, but it still is a remarkable step in the direction of cooperation across different civilizations which is sort of striking a more hopeful tone than you might expect. Mass Effect saying maybe international cooperation is possible. Maybe it would have to start small, just a few states, but maybe it's possible to establish real international law and pursue real long-term international goals. Within the Mass Effect setting, we see the Council passing legislation dealing with trade and law enforcement and also achieving meaningful arms control something that, to one degree or another, has eluded world powers for generations in the real world. Another just interesting little detail, and again, I love that Mass Effect drops these little details to fill out the world and make it feel more real. In the context of the game, and this isn't even a big plot point, but it's just mentioned, we learned that this Citadel Council has previously passed arms control legislation limiting the number of dreadnoughts any civilization can possess. Dreadnoughts being sort of the Mass Effect equivalent of aircraft carriers. They're sort of the pinnacle of spaceship combat. They're these big, kilometer-long starships with massive guns that can wreak horrible destruction. And within the Mass Effect setting, we learn that the Citadel Council has passed a law saying that any civilization is limited in the number of these dreadnoughts they can have, with the Turian species, the Turians being one of the Council races, 
in being sort of the military power behind the council. They provide most of the military might for the council's peacekeeping forces. Turians being allowed basically as many of these ships as they want. And then for the other two major council races, the Salarians and Asari, they're allowed dreadnoughts at a ratio of three to five. For every five dreadnoughts the Turians have, the Salarians and Asari can have three. And then any other associate council species can have one for every three. So five to three to one is the ratio. Turians can have the most, then the other two major council races, then everybody else. And so an attempt to sort of limit the proliferation of destructive weapons, and clearly also an attempt to sort of maintain the military status quo, sort of establishing that, yes, the Turians and then the other council races are going to remain the dominant military forces in the galaxy, and everybody else sort of has to accept that. And again, all of this, just what I love about hard sci-fi, using a science fiction setting to explore real-world political and social ideas. How does arms control work? Whose interests does it serve? And how would it work in a galaxy with alien species? All of this stuff I just love. And so this is the setting the player is thrown into in the first Mass Effect, a galaxy full of intelligent life that, before humanity ever discovered it, sort of established a political status quo that humanity now has to sort of navigate and figure out. And I also like how this setting really gives us a mix of different views, different theories of how international relations works. I think I've talked a little bit in the past about realism, the international relations theory that basically says, look, we're all just rational and self-interested. Conflict is sort of inevitable because we're always going to just be looking out for our own best interests. And this is contrasted with some other major theories of international relations, namely liberalism or liberal institutionalism, a theory that says, no, long-term peace is possible. We just have to promote democracy and international trade and build up international institutions. And these things will sort of prop up a peaceful world order. Once we're all democratic and tied together through trade and through cooperative international organizations, we'll be able to achieve some degree of peace and contrast both of these theories with a theory known as constructivism, a theory that basically says, you know, the international world is sort of what we make of it. If we as individuals, if we as states believe that we're all just rational and self-interested and conflict is sort of inevitable, we're going to behave like that. We're going to behave in a way that sort of replicates that kind of world. If we all just assume we're all out for ourselves and conflict is inevitable, we're going to take actions to protect ourselves that bring about that kind of world. But if we can change our mindset, if we can change how we view the international world and come to see peace as being possible, as being achievable, we'll behave in more positive ways and produce a more liberal, peaceful world. And you can kind of see all these theories being hinted at here. There's a lot of realism here. There are a lot of hints that maybe the galaxy really is a realist place. Maybe all these civilizations really are out for themselves. You have these council races that are clearly concerned with very realist things. They're concerned with maintaining a balance of power, ensuring that they're all relatively equal to one another, and ensuring that they remain the dominant powers in the galaxy and keep everybody else from rising to challenge them. So you have a lot of realist ideas, but at the same time, you have some much more liberal ideas in here too. The council, while ultimately trying to preserve its own power, 
you do at times get hints that they truly do want to cooperate with one another and with the rest of the galactic community. You get the sense that they are kind of looking out for themselves, but the whole council business, the idea of diplomacy, it's not just an act for them. It really isn't just a tool for them to preserve their power. They truly do want to promote a peaceful galaxy for its own sake. They really do want to bring more civilizations into the fold. So we get hints of liberalism here, and finally... We get hints of almost sort of a constructivist mindset. It's hinted at that a big part of the reason the council is more interested in diplomacy and not as aggressive as you might expect a dominant political power to be is that the council has come to be dominated diplomatically by the Asari race. And it's explained that the Asari based on their biology and their unique evolution and culture and history, they are uniquely interested in biodiversity. They are uniquely interested in having contact with a lot of other alien species. And as a result, they're more open to dialogue with other species. They're more open to diplomacy. And it's sort of hinted at that this sort of dictates how galactic politics develop. And that if, hypothetically, the Asari didn't exist and it had been the Turians or the Salarians or the humans who had first come to power and first come to dominate the council in galactic politics, then maybe things would have taken a much more realist direction because these other races are much more about just rational self-interest. Get the other guy before he gets you. Whereas the Asari are just, their Asari nature is not human nature. Asari are not inclined to that same cold, calculating, rational self-interest that humans and other species are. And so, different mindset, different behavior, different outcome. It's sort of a very constructivist idea. And so again, all of this, just great, phenomenal stuff. And this is why I love Mass Effect, at least the first game. It gives us such a rich world that feels real. It feels believable. You feel like you can truly inhabit this world and explore it, and it all makes sense. Now, that's not to say there are no plot holes, no story is perfect, but it does feel real and well thought out. You feel like this is a world crafted by people who love world building, who love creating worlds that flow naturally from themselves. Everything sort of fits together. You can look at any element of this world and you can see how it connects to something else and you can see how there's an explanation for why things are the way they are. For example, in the game we learn that there's a galactic law against opening new mass relays until you know where the other end goes. And this is sort of slowed expansion in the galaxy. And... A lot of games, I think, would have just left that as it is. Just said, yeah, that we don't expand very much, and that's why there's conflict in the galaxy. There's not enough space to expand because we don't open these relays. Mass Effect takes the time to explain why this happened. We've discovered that centuries before human beings discovered space travel, some other galactic race opened up a mass relay not knowing where it was going to lead, and they discover a hostile alien race that ends up waging war on the rest of the galaxy and almost destroying them all. And after that, after the rest of the galaxy barely scrapes by and wins, the Citadel Council sort of says, well, we're not making that mistake again. No more opening new relays until we know where they go. So just, you can pull on any thread in the story and see it leads somewhere. It connects to something. I just, I love that. I can't say enough positive things about this game. And so that's the setup for Mass Effect. And I can't explain any more without spoiling elements of the story later. 
I am definitely going to do that at some point in future episodes. I'm going to talk more about the intricacies of the Mass Effect plot, how things develop, more about the politics of the setting. But I'll leave it at that for now. And if you're a listener and you're into this kind of thing, please check out Mass Effect. In fact, please give Mass Effect a shot before I do any more Mass Effect-themed episodes so you can know what I'm talking about when I talk about some of the other stuff. And so I think that's it. That's my take on the Mass Effect setting, at least the Mass Effect setting as presented in the first game. Amazing world building, hard sci-fi, at least for a video game, great political ideas and themes, well worth a shot. Thank you. Side rant. Since we're talking about Mass Effect 1, I want to talk about one of my favorite moral political conundrums that emerges in this game. Now, this is minor spoilers. This touches on a plot point that will come up later in the game, and actually it touches on a plot line that will run throughout the series. So I'm not revealing any big twist or anything, but this is something that you'll learn about and explore in the game, and it's a little more spoiler-heavy. But still, no, no, nothing, nothing big. This isn't, I'm not revealing who Luke's dad is or anything like that. But anyway, I want to talk about this because this is one of my favorite moral conundrums in the game. And just interesting to think about what is the right thing to do morally, politically, in a situation like this. In Mass Effect, we learn that, again, there's a whole history in this galaxy before humans ever get on the scene. And we learn that part of this history is there was a brief war between the rest of the galaxy and an alien species known as the Krogans. And the Krogans are sort of the Klingons of Mass Effect. They are a race of hyper-aggressive, hyper-tough and masculine aliens who tend to glorify war and conflict and conquest and so on. And the background here is, and again, just loving the world building and how all of this stuff is established in a way that one thing flows into the next and all makes sense. It's explained that the Krogan are the way they are because of the planet they evolved on. The Krogan evolved on a planet where there were just a whole lot of predatory species. Massive predators, dangerous species, and the Krogans, as they evolved, had to evolve to be very tough and aggressive to survive. It's actually explained in Mass Effect that when people go back and look at Krogan history, it's discovered that prior to the invention of gunpowder on the Krogan homeworld, the leading cause of death for a Krogan was eaten by predator. And then it's further explained that after gunpowder was invented, the leading cause of death then changed to be death by gunshot. So a hint at the world the Krogan inhabit and the Krogan mindset. Another little detail that I love that we get out of this, a hint at how dangerous and ruthless the Krogan homeworld is. It's specifically explained that Krogan as a species, while they are carnivores, they are meat eaters and they evolved from carnivores who hunted prey, Krogan have evolved to have their eyes on the sides of their head, as opposed to basically all predators we know on Earth. Essentially, the idea is on Earth, predators, species that hunt and kill for their food, tend to have their eyes facing straight ahead. The thinking is predators need eyes facing straight ahead so they can focus, hone in on their prey. They want better depth perception, and they want to be able to focus on their prey. Meanwhile, prey animals, herbivores who are hunted for food, they tend to evolve with eyes on the sides of their head because they don't want to focus on a target. They want as near to 360 degree vision as possible so they can see any predators coming in. And so what we learn in Mass Effect is that Krogan, while being predators, still have evolved eyes 
on the sides of their head because that's how dangerous their home world is. Even the predators are constantly looking out for other predators. And so that's the background on the Krogan. And we learn that the Krogan, they're, you know, they evolved on this rough and tumble planet. They evolved to be very aggressive. And further, in order to survive, the Krogan evolved so that when they give birth, females will give birth to like hundreds of eggs all at once. And the idea is most of them are not going to survive to adulthood. So they have hundreds and hundreds of children at a time and only a handful live. And the planet just kind of, all the dangers of the planet kind of keep everything in check, in balance. Now, what happens with the Krogan is when the rest of the galaxy discovers the Krogan, the galaxy is that war with that hostile alien race that I talked about when they went to the mass relays. The galaxy discovers this hostile alien race that doesn't want to negotiate. They just want to wipe out all life. The rest of the galaxy is getting their asses kicked. And they discover the Krogan, who are sort of in the nuclear age on their planet. They've evolved to the point where they have nuclear power. And they're actually fighting nuclear wars with each other because they're so aggressive. But they haven't figured out advanced space travel yet. And the rest of the galaxy's solution to the problem of how do we win this war against this hostile alien race is let's uplift the Krogan. Let's take this incredibly fast-breeding and aggressive species. Let's give them new technology, better weapons, space travel, and ask them to go fight this other alien race for us. And the Krogan happily do that. They happily take the weapons and the technology and go out and beat the shit out of this other alien race and win the war. And yay, it's all good. Problem is, after the war is over, now you have this race that's been sort of uplifted. They now have access to this new technology and the council races to thank them, to reward them for their efforts, give the Krogan a few planets to colonize. Like, here are some more places for you guys to expand on and build up your civilization as a thanks for what you did for us. Now, you may be seeing the problem already here. The problem is, once you take the Krogan, who breed incredibly fast and are super aggressive, and take them and give them new technology and take them off the planet that is so hostile and kept their numbers in check, their breeding gets out of control. Once they're on other planets, they start populating and overpopulating these planets and needing more and more space to expand. And so the Krogan, because they're overpopulating all these other planets they're on, start taking more planets and more planets. And before you know it, this aggressive fast-breeding species is now trying to conquer the galaxy. So sort of swallowing the spider to catch the fly. The galaxy props up the Krogan to fight this other species, and now the Krogan are the problem. And the question becomes, how does the galaxy fight off this threat? You have a super aggressive species that can breed way faster than anybody else in the galaxy. How can we hope to defeat them? And the solution the Citadel Council comes up with is essentially germ warfare. The Council uses spies, special forces people, to develop and release among the Krogan population this sort of virus that essentially renders a large chunk of the Krogan population infertile. It, it's never clearly explained how it works. There's a question of whether or not the males become infertile or the women can't carry pregnancies to term, like the eggs die before they can be laid. It's never really explained clearly. But the upshot is that most of the Krogan species is rendered incapable of producing offspring. And this is how they are defeated. And this becomes one of the great debates in the Mass Effect setting. Was this action justifiable? It arguably was the only way to win this war. You have this species that you can't beat militarily. They've just got greater numbers. 
you can't hope to defeat them any other way. Was something like this justified? Does the end justify the means? On the one hand, it seems like the galaxy couldn't have survived otherwise. On the other hand, it amounts to genocide. What we learn is that so much of the Krogan population was affected by this that they're dying out. Now they can't produce the numbers they need to maintain a stable population and factor in the fact that Krogan are naturally aggressive. They're more likely to go out and fight and get themselves killed before they can produce offspring. The race is dying out. When Mass Effect begins, humanity joins this galaxy and finds a race is slowly dying out because the rest of the galaxy used germ warfare on them. And it's an ongoing debate about, one, was this justified? And two, should the rest of the galaxy try to reverse this? It becomes a plot point in later games. Is it possible to develop a cure for this virus and restore the Krogan ability to reproduce? And the question becomes, if we reverse what the rest of the galaxy did, will the Krogan go right back to trying to conquer the galaxy again? But how can you morally justify allowing something like this to continue, allowing a species to slowly go extinct, to essentially commit genocide on an entire species. And this becomes one of the core moral conundrums of Mass Effect. And again, just speaks to the, the great writing. Like, what a great setup for an ethical and political dilemma. How do you resolve a conflict like this? And... Love to hear your thoughts. If you're already a Mass Effect fan, you've probably debated this constantly, but love to hear your thoughts. If you're new to this setting, what's the right thing to do in a scenario like this? And finally, again, if you haven't played the game yet, pick it up, check it out. It's well worth your time. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, suggestions for future episodes. Please consider subscribing and reviewing. You can be in touch with me on social media, on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at social underscore sci underscore fi, and you can email me at socialsciencefictionshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. New episode next Tuesday. See you then.